I entitled today's message, Prep to Succeed. And hopefully by the end of today's message, that will have a, a deeper resonance for you. But let's begin with a quote by Oswald Chambers. He said this, Character in a saint, and that is indeed what all of us are as believers, character in a saint means the disposition of Jesus Christ persistently manifested. It means being like Jesus all the time, right? I mean, isn't that what it just said? Let's not make it more complicated than it needs to be. Character for us is being Christ-like all the time. That's what character means. It's not like we're trying to concoct something or make up something new. It's living like Jesus. And you're going to see a lot about living like Christ and what that means for us. So I guess we should ask the question, are you living like Jesus? You're like, well, yeah, I wear the little wristband, right? The little what would Jesus do band. And that's what Jesus wore, right? No, not necessarily. I appreciate the thought. I think that's, that's great. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Does your life exude, emanate, pour out the very nature of Jesus? Because he dwells within you. If he doesn't dwell within you, we have a whole other problem. We need to begin in the right way, and that is having a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And how does that begin? But by falling at his feet and saying, save me, Lord. That's where it begins. We can't talk at all about spiritual growth if we're not born again, if we're not alive. So if any of you are listening to me, and you have not yet begun your walk with Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, wow, today's going to be frustrating. Because we keep talking about what's next. Let's begin rightly. Then we can go on to what's next. So you'll have to end up grabbing the podcast later on. If you want to just go ahead and start your walk with God today and just kind of focus on him and ignore me for the rest of the time, that'd be great. And then you can go ahead and listen to it later. But for the rest of us, I have a fill in the blank that I want to get to there on your sheet. And I want to begin by giving you a concept. The concept is, how does it work for us to spiritually grow? We know that there is a God part, and we should know that there is a what? Our part. God's part and our part, they work in conjunction. But how does that work? It seems when we read some passages, it seems to be all God's business. Nothing to do with us. Then we read other passages, and it seems like everything lives and dies based on choices that we make. So how do those two things work together? Well, William Barclay, who wrote a whole bunch of commentaries, he's a super smart guy, he came up with this concept real simple. He said, I picture it like this. Imagine that some really, really wealthy guy takes a homeless kid who would never have the opportunity to go to college. The kids put in all his effort in high school, but really... He would never, ever have the money to go to a fine institution. The wealthy man takes him under his wing and pays for a full-ride scholarship to go to a university. That is a free gift. It is giving the child something he could never have on his own. And yet, it has no value to him unless the kid puts in hard work and actually goes through and earns the education. You understand what I'm saying? So, the two work together. The generous, gracious gift becomes fully utilized as the young man engages with his education. 
Though it has been paid for and provided for and initiated by, he still has a tremendous responsibility to bring that to fruition. Maybe that helps a little bit. The way I look at it simply is this. God's part is all the important stuff, right? The heavy stuff. That's the salvation, rescue, opportunity, power, adoption with benefits. All that stuff is God's. What's our part? The way I see it is this. Utilizing what God's given us for victorious Christian living and honing the gifts and skills that he's built into us. Paul talks about working out your salvation, almost like working out in the dough, having it come out in your life, what God has baked into you. You are loaded with potential for God. You are loaded with gifts and with power and with strength. Is any of that being utilized? That's the question for us today. But make no mistake, the fill in the blank in front of you is true. If you write this down, just write, God has set his children up for victory. God has set his children up for victory. If there is failure, it is not on God's shoulders. If there is a lack of growth, it is not God's fault. If there is a faltering, it is not God's responsibility. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and he has given generously and lavishly. Oh, he's given us more than enough. He has prepped us to succeed in every spiritual endeavor. Now, what he did not do was prep you to get everything you want. That is not biblical. But when it comes to stuff that matters, we're loaded. Why don't you turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. Um, If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll have our team bring one to you. Um, It helps. You really got to kind of follow along because it it starts winding through a couple different uh, passages here. And I start sharing and you're going to kind of get lost in what I'm reading. So it helps to see it in front of you. So keep your hands up until you get one. Second Peter is in the New Testament. It's almost all the way towards Revelation. You're pretty familiar with that part, right? So you just back up a couple books. First, second, Peter, first, second, third, John, Jude, Revelation, and we're all kind of at the end there. They're all real small books. The cool thing about it is when you open it up, you go, oh, look, it's all, it's all on two pages. Yay. We all like the small books, right? Because then you can read it and say, in my devotionals, I read a whole book of the Bible, right? We like those. Now, I think it's going to be a four-part series. It's only three chapters. So I, I think we might be able to make this. Now, when we start any book of the Bible... You've got to get context. You must have background. You must have the idea of what was going on and why the letter's here in the first place. If you miss that, you're going to miss crucial elements of what you're supposed to be understanding. Uh, Let's make it real practical. If I was writing you a letter and you were on vacation, I would have one tone in my letter, right? I would have very much of a lighthearted tone. I'd be talking about some fun stuff, some enjoyable stuff, not trying to break your mood, right? I'm trying to enhance your experience on vacation, right? If you've gone in a place where I've gone, I was just talking with somebody this morning, one of my friends, about Hawaii. It was a place that I had been before. And so I was talking in one tone. That's different than if they've just lost a loved one. Would you agree? The tone drastically changes. 
Now all of a sudden it's very somber, very serious, very respectful, very encouraging, very heavy. If I was to write a letter to you and you were at camp, it would be very different than the letter I write to you when you're in prison. You understand? You must understand. We must grasp what's going on when this letter was written. So we dive back and we start uh, talking about some of these uh, some of these core issues. Who wrote the book of Second Peter? All right. Everyone's like, well, Peter makes it easy. It's right there on the top. Okay, are you sure? We're like, yeah, well, maybe Peter's brother named Peter, right? Okay, because it's it's second Peter. What does that mean? Right? Would it matter if I told you that it's like the, the, the uh, excuse me, let me try that again. It probably wouldn't matter if I said it that way. I don't even know what the heck I was talking about. Amen. That's the only time I ever get an amen. What's wrong with this church? Would it matter if I told you that Second Peter was likely the last book to ever be included in the Bible? As a matter of fact, it was rejected by the first canon and lockdown of what Scripture was. Would that bother you? As a matter of fact, the first council that happened in 170 A.D., and I want you to get perspective here. Jesus born maybe just before zero, right? So maybe born 2-3 B.C., dies around 30 A.D. We have a relatively new church. You now scoot out 150 years. They have the first council that locks down the books that are supposed to be in the New Testament. Guess what's not there? Second Peter. Nor is second and third John, nor is Jude, nor is James. These were on a list of disputed books, and second Peter was rejected by most. As a matter of fact, we have an ancient document from Eusebius, which is a guy that wrote in around the 300s, and he said, we have found it not to be canonical. You're like... It's not a cone? <laughs> I don't get it. What, what, what's canonical? Okay. What we call our Bible, or the accepted group of books in our Bible, we call it the canon. He said not supposed to be in there. And everything surrounded the fact that they didn't think that Peter wrote it. Why? Well, there's a whole bunch of them, and if I went through all of them, you'd be bored out of your mind. However, let me chop it down for a couple things. One of the main reasons is they said it doesn't sound like 1 Peter. Seems like it's kind of a different atmosphere. It's written different. 1 Peter is written all organized and smooth. 2 Peter is really rough. Seems a little bit forced. It's kind of bad Greek. It's just that they're drastically different in their style. Their tone, the atmosphere, it all seems to be different. The other thing is that, and we have some big questions on it, because the early church fathers, you would assume that if Peter, the big dog in the New Testament church, wrote a book, man, everybody's got to grab onto that one, right? So if, he didn't, if they didn't accept it in the early church, are we supposed to accept it? What are some of the other problems? Well, there's a whole list of them. Uh, there's striking similarities to two other pieces of 
literature. One is it's really, really similar to Jude. If you've ever read the book of Jude, that's another one to do a good devotion on because it only takes about, I don't know, 15 minutes. There's very similar passage that and very similar to the Jewish historian Josephus that didn't write till after Peter was dead. How's that possible? So as they went through it, they said it's a great book. There's not a lot of new information necessarily. It says it in a new way, but I'm not sure it's Peter. So we're going to go ahead and leave that one out for a while. You got to read it because it's going to bless you. But I don't think it's supposed to be part of our Bible. So why do we then have it in our Bible? And why are we studying it today? Despite the challenges that have been given to it, let me give you six reasons why I think that it is legit and why that I think it is Peter. If you take any notes, why don't you take a note on this part? Number one, why do we believe that it's Peter and it's legit? Well, he says it is. You're like, that's a stupid reason. You cannot just go, well, I said I'm Peter, so therefore I'm Peter. Well, you kind of can if you can back it up. And here's what it means. When you read through this book, he right off the bat says, I'm Peter. That's a big challenge. That's a big thing to say. And if you're going to forge a book, you better be pretty darn smooth to get that one nailed down, right? So he says he's Peter, but not only that, he says it in a way that only the guy would say it. Little nuances. Like, for example, he messes with the, the spelling of his name. Right off the top. And you go, why in the world would a forger mess with his name? If he's trying to make it sound legit, you don't mess with the name, especially right up front. Don't start making everybody ask questions. He throws out his old Hebrew style name right at the beginning, unlike he did in First Peter. Well, there's more to it. It's not just what that he says that he is. He starts speaking in the first person. He talks about being there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three guys were there. Peter, James and John. Right. Number two, he said, this is my second letter. If you're going to write a forgery, don't write like part two. Because all those people you just wrote to, they know your style. They know what you're talking about. That is a very personalized letter. So it's the second letter to the same group of people. Number three, most likely the change in atmosphere and tone has to do with why it was being written, when it was being written, which is likely three years later, and who it was written by. You go, well, hold on a second. I thought you just said Peter wrote it. I said Peter's the author. Let me ask you this. Who wrote first Peter? Not Peter. Who wrote it? He says it in his book. Silas. Did you see that? At the end, he says, with the help of Silas, I wrote you this letter. He didn't write it down. As a matter of fact, these guys, a lot of them, they wrote and they had scribes write it for them. The scribes made it smooth. The scribes made it accurate. The scribes worked with the language to craft exactly what the author was trying to say. It's most likely... Peter had Silas, the brilliant architect, write the first one, but he didn't have him around for the second one. Guess who wrote the second one, likely? Peter himself. That's why it's all messed up. Remember I told you that if you read the Gospel of John, it seems much more organized than if you read Revelation. Revelation is all messed up Greek and it was all weird. That's because John wrote it. Don't you remember what these guys did for a living? They're fishermen. 
They're just average, ordinary guys. They're not scholars. Paul the Apostle is a scholar. Maybe Matthew was, was educated. But you got these two fishermen guys, John and Peter, and they're right, and they're kind of like, A, B, right? It's all in crayon. Right? And they're like, oh, clearly something's wrong. Yeah, something's wrong. A different guy wrote it. Same author. Number three, uh, excuse me, number four, there's no motivation of heresy or forgery. Excuse me. There's no motivation of forgery. Why in the world would you write a book that inserts no new doctrine? You're not doing anything that changes anything. And not only that, a big part of the book is about the doom, destruction, and going to hell of false teachers. Is that really what you're going to write about? Right? If you're a false teacher. Probably not. Okay? Number five. Even though there's big differences between the two books, there's tremendous similarities. As a matter of fact, it's very similar to the Gospels and very similar to what was recorded in Acts that Peter said. So it is still in the Peter groove. And then finally, the last reason we have it in our Bible is because by the council of Laodicea in 366, what, A.D.? It was accepted, and every council after that unanimously accepted in. Why? Because they had received enough information to go, this is completely legit. Even though there's very little trace of it in the 200s, by the 300s, the late 300s, it was absolutely accepted. And everybody began to roll with it and say it is 100% Peter. All right. That's all our background information as far as who the author is. When was it written? We know that Peter likely died in AD 68 because he died under the reign of Nero. Nero died in that year. So we know that it was probably written between 64 and 68. This is only, what, about 35 years after the death of Jesus. This is a very early piece of writing, though Paul wrote before him. Remember, Paul wrote before the Gospels. Did you realize that? We have them backwards in our Bible. We always assume that the Gospels were written, then Paul writes. No, actually, it was almost backwards. Paul wrote first. So, a couple people have already written. Jude had already written. And now, Peter comes in and continues his discussion. All right, why was it written? This young church, imagine Christianity only being about 35 years old. And all these false teachers come flying into the church and start messing with people's heads. All the pastors are going to get up in arms. If I dare heard that someone came in and started teaching garbage in this church, you know how irate I get? This is the flock that God gave me to guard and protect. So if someone starts coming in, taking over the pulpit, they're speaking some garbage up here that's heresy, I'm going to come in real strong. So did Peter. The guys that had come in were known by a couple fancy names. They were Gnostics. They were Antinomians. Here's basically what they were. They were under the belief that because your body was evil, it didn't matter what you did. God's grace was going to cover your spirit, so it doesn't matter how you lived. So this was their cell. Pretty easy cell, right? They came up and they said, the Bible... We'll talk about all the great stuff you're going to get in God. You're going to get all the good stuff and there are no rules. You can do anything you want to do. It's all cool in God because his grace will cover you. So no big deal. 
Don't even worry about the whole self-control thing. Just go for it. Okay, is that a pretty easy sell? Yeah. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, I like those guys, right? Peter was like, what did you just say? Are you messing with my flock? Oh, I don't think so. I think we need to start talking about hell, right? Because he begins to talk about the dangers of listening to these false teachers. All right, that's all our background. Let's dive into the book. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, page 860. And the Bible's handed to you in case you missed that part. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. I'm just going to read 11 verses. That's all we're going to cover this morning. So let's see what we have. Uh, Simon Peter, it says, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, To godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why don't we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together, Lord, that we can walk through your word and begin to dig out all the treasure that you have buried there. May we all leave here changed people, living differently, loving you more, loving people more, and altering our lives into your image. God, may you be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Peter is writing to believers that are scattered throughout what we now know as modern-day Turkey. Mostly they're Gentiles, non-Jews, so it's going to have a certain flavor to it. It's intriguing, however, if you remember, there was a big strain in the early church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews always had the corner market on God. All of a sudden, the Gentiles are coming in. The Jews are a little bit resistant on this whole idea of, wait, who are you? I mean, I understand we have to accept you, but I don't really want to. And there was still a little bit of oddity in the body. So it's intriguing about how Peter begins his letter. He starts off with a weird way of saying his name. He said, hi, I just want to let you know who I am. And all the ancient letters always started that way. You start off with who you are, who you're writing to, and a greeting. Something to say, hey, I hope you have a great day. Then you go into your letter. We usually put that stuff at the end, right? 
So right off the bat, he says, my name is Simeon Peter. You're like, Simeon Peter, that's weird. That's like your boyhood name. That's like your old school Hebrew name. He's like, that's right. My Hebrew name. I am Simeon. And that's what I was known growing up. That's a Hebrew concept. But then he attaches it to Peter. Peter is Greek. Peter is the name that Jesus gave him, which was Cephas, the rock. You remember that? He slides Hebrew and Greek together right off the bat. He says, in me, it's an amazing blending of what God has done. What is Peter like? Do you remember his nature? Do you remember this guy in the Bible? I mean, he's pretty popular. Peter is the ultimate story of transformation. Why? Because here you got loud mouth, stick your foot in your mouth, guy that says all the things wrong. He's always the guy that everyone was embarrassed to hang out with. He's the fisherman, right, that worked really hard, was kind of gruff and did his own thing. And everybody was kind of like, oh, Peter's here. I mean, he's fun at a party, but really, we got some important stuff to do. Why is Peter here? Right? Peter's like, I'm here. Right? He just comes storming in. Right? As a matter of fact, if you remember, his transformation was incredible. Here comes Jesus rolling up and says, you're a rock. And everyone's like, yeah, that'll never happen. This guy's anything but a rock. This guy's a joke. What are you talking about? He doesn't know what he's doing. He ends up being the pillar of the church. He ends up being the head of the New Testament church. And I don't think it just completely shifted over. Notice that all along the way, even though he got to say some of the coolest lines in the Bible, who else can we go to? You're the Messiah. Remember he said all that stuff? He was also the guy that rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus turned around and called him Satan. You remember that? He's also the one that did what? He denied Jesus three times. Then had to get reinstated into his ministry. All the way through, no matter where you go, then you go, oh, well, at least after Pentecost, he was solid. No, he wasn't. Why? Have you ever read Paul's letters? What did he do? Paul had to go rebuke Peter. Even Paul steps up to rebuke the head of the whole New Testament church because he was compromising in his lifestyle. So, in other words, I don't think he was a solid rock all the way up until maybe his deathbed. I mean, maybe right before he took his last breath, he went, I'm solid, uh, and then died, right? I mean, I don't think he was solid ever. I think the guy was just completely kind of all over the map. So the whole time the church is like, really, we're going to build on this guy? What are we doing? Lord, do you even know what you're doing here? God knew exactly what he was doing because it was always going to glorify him, not the leader who it was done through. This is Peter. He said, hi, I'm a story of transformation. And I'm a combo. I'm a combo of Hebrew and Greek. And so are you. Look what God did with me. Imagine what he can do with you. Simeon, Peter, a servant, a doulos in Greek. What does that mean? It means a slave. Barclay said this. He said it, it means at least four things. That Peter was owned by God. At God's disposal, obedient to his master, and always in service. It means at least that. Paul called himself a slave. Peter goes, I am a slave of God just like you. But in addition to that, I'm also an apostle. An apostle of Jesus Christ. That means Jesus personally called me out and sent me on a mission. 
Not many people can say that. And so he says, that gives me authority. I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. Though we are equal in the eyes of God, he has given me a specific directive. And I need you to watch the false teaching that is coming into this church, he said. Simeon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, meaning Christians, who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith. Wait a second. To those who through the righteousness, okay, through all but what God did, of who? Of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You better underline that. Why? It's one of the only times the New Testament ever calls Jesus God. Do you see that? Even in Greek, the construction is written in such a way that they both go back to the same word. Now, we may feel we're completely comfortable with Jesus being God, but understand, it explicitly says it very few times. That's one of them right there. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, they have received a faith. Check this out. They didn't earn it. They received the faith. That word means in Greek to obtain by lot. What is lot? It's like flipping a coin or drawing straws. They received it based on no work of themselves. God initiated and brought them to faith. They have received the faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance, he says. Now, normally, that's the way that First Peter started. That's the way that Paul talks a lot. I want you to understand how powerful that phrase is. Grace and peace to you. If you ever write somebody a letter and you understand it, you can sign this, and it would have deep implications. Here's what it means. First of all, grace is charis, and it's a Greek word. And the Greeks believed very strongly in this idea Grace is, may God's blessings flow into you, even though you don't deserve it, but you may you be overflowed with the love of God. Peace is much more of a Hebrew concept, which we know the word to be shalom. Now, we've talked about it many, many times before, but understand shalom is not just peace. It's may all the things in your life. Settle to a place where you are being blessed at every turn. May the warfare inside your soul calm. And may God in his own nature step in and lift you high. That's a powerful phrase. So he breaks it out, throws out Greek, Hebrew, slides them together again. And says, may that be yours in abundance. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he gets right into the meat of it. His divine power, God's dynamite, is really what it means in Greek. His divine power has given us as believers everything we need for life and godliness. That word, everything we need, that is a famous Greek phrase that refers to a guy who was given the task of providing for a massive performance. It had to be someone that was wealthy and that gave the professional singers and performers everything they need to have an incredible performance. So here's the concept. I want you to picture it like this. I want you to picture, let's say, uh, somebody pick a sport. Basketball. So let's say in basketball, you're a professional athlete. Do you think that professional athletes pay for their ball? 
Do they ever pay for their shoes? They don't pay for anything. What's the point? All their what? All the people that come in and support them? What are those guys called? Sponsors, right? The sponsors step up and they give them tons of stuff. Is it the last year's model? No, come on. It's always the best stuff. Then, do they always get one pair of shoes? Hey, if you wear those out, oh well. No, do you understand all these guys end up throwing them into the crowd because they get a brand new model, what, for every game? They have more than enough. They are oversupplied in an incredibly lavish and generous way so that they might have the best performance of their lives. That's the phrase and how we are equipped as children of God. How are we equipped by God? With the best, most state-of-the-art, and an overabundance. And if you break one, you got about 300 more waiting in your closet. You have everything you need. For what? For life. Life. What do you mean life? I mean the hard stuff of life, the challenges of life. For life and for what? Godliness. Being like Jesus, doing what he would do. You have everything you need. It seems silly then that we spend so much time praying for things as if we don't have them. God, give me strength. Isn't that a weird prayer? He's like, what do you mean give you strength? Like more than all the stuff you're not using right now? (laughs) All right. Why? So you can put it in a trailer somewhere? Why exactly would I give you more strength? You're not utilizing the strength I just gave you. Oh, God, give me more discernment. Hold on. I gave you what you needed, and I gave you actually a little bit more, so you actually understand things you probably don't need to understand. All right? But you're my kid, so I share with you. We have given, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And how did we get that? Through the knowledge of him. That word knowledge is going to be used a lot. Because a lot of the teachers, the false teachers of that day, said that the only way to get to know God is if you have secret code. He said, no, the way you get to know him is you learn to love him and know him personally and intimately and have a relationship with him. The more and more you grow and know Jesus, the more you know about him. And it just keeps going on and on and on. Your whole life, you're getting to know somebody. Your whole life, you're getting to know a person of Jesus. Right? Who has called us, meaning he initiated it, he called us by his own glory and goodness. Why are we saved today? Because God is good and it makes him look good. That's it. That's the only reasons why you're saved and why I'm saved. Through these, he has given us, not the normal giving word, but a valuable gift. He has given us his very great and precious promises. What are those? The inheritance we get by being in part of the family of God. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through the power and the gifts, you may participate in the divine nature. Partner with God, with the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower you to live. And you get to do things with God. If you are born again, all things have become new and now you are alive in the spirit. You are now alive supernaturally. You used to be dead in your sins. Now you are alive. Now you are connected and united with the very God who created you. You now participate 
in what he is doing throughout the world. You are then changing the world and changing the supernatural world. Is that pretty cool? That's some good stuff. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and what? Escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You escape all the garbage and moral decay that happens by walking through this world and being tempted. All right. Now, let's get real practical. Let's go. Let's dive into this and figure out how are we going to change. This is the next portion. Verse 5. For this reason, meaning because God has overly, what, supplied everything we need. For this reason, make every effort. What do you think that means in Greek? It means make every effort. <laughs> Use all your energy, all your strength. To add to your faith. Now notice he doesn't say go get faith by effort. It's already assumed that it's there. Make every effort to add to your faith. And faith is what? Believing in Jesus Christ. Add to your faith. What's the first thing you need to add? Goodness. This is a horrible translation. Because it doesn't really explain what it means in Greek. What do you mean goodness? It means all these words, excellence, virtue, courage. You're like, I don't get it. In the Greek, here's the concept. You become an expert at living well, fulfilling your God-given purpose. You are excellent in every way that God has designed you from the inner core. In other words, the first thing that you need to do after receiving faith in Jesus Christ is you immediately work on the core of who you are. You immediately begin to go, wait a second, all this garbage that's still hanging on, I'm going to push outward. And I'm going to get it out. I'm going to begin to stream through my thoughts and sift what is going into my life. And in the very core, I will become an expert at doing what God has asked me to do. I will be all about His purposes, and He will become priority number one, and that is where I will begin. That is what the word goodness means. You add to your faith goodness. What do you add to goodness? What's that next? Knowledge. Add to goodness knowledge. That is the ability to decide rightly. The ability to act honorably and efficiently in this life. Practical wisdom. Truth comprehended and applied. It means start making right decisions. Be wise. You add to this great inner core that has pushed out garbage. You now start making right decisions as you walk through life. You know what is godly. You know what is wicked. You begin to discern and move through. When you make a mistake and you go, oh, shoot, I'm down a bad road. You back up. You repent. You start over. You walk down the right way. You don't start walking in the dark forest and going off the path because you want to. You are determined to make good decisions. So you add to your core right walking. What do you add to that? He moves on to the next one. You add self-control. You know what it means in Greek? To take grip of yourself. Get a hold of yourself, man. Stop letting your passions, your desires, your wants get control of you. They're forcing you to do everything. No one, no thing will ever master you or control you if you have been set free by Jesus. In other words, that's the command. You need to stop letting things push you around. 
Get a grip back of yourself as you're walking through and making decisions. Temptation shows up. That's where you have to be strong enough and hone the ability to say no. No, I'm not doing that. Do I want to do that? Of course I want to do that. Are you kidding me? Would I rather sin? Yeah. But that's why I say no. Because that's, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Because I know where that's going to lead. Do you understand how these things are starting to pull together? So let me, when it gets to the issue of self-control, let me, let me talk for a moment about this idea that I mentioned earlier, the what would Jesus do thing. Remember? Um, and you all remember this. This is kind of a 90s thing. Or I don't know. Maybe it was 2000. I don't know. I have a horrible memory on that. Uh, but we all had little wristbands and said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Very cool concept about the idea of, hey, as I'm walking through life, I need to make some good decisions. And Jesus always makes the right decisions. So really, I need to be putting myself in his mindset and say, what would Jesus do? There's a serious problem with it. Whenever I do discipleship of any kind, and I do certain classes throughout the year, I, train, I talk about this way. I said, let's change those letters from WWJD to HWJT. How would Jesus train? I go, what? I go, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're walking through, living your own way, doing your own things, being gluttonous, being self-indulging. And then you walk up to a situation of temptation and you go, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would actually get through the temptation. Guess what you would do? Not that. Because you have no strength. You have no idea what you're doing. What, you're just going to do what Jesus did? And you haven't lived like Jesus has lived at all. But you're supposed to do what Jesus does. Oh, really? How's that working out for you? I don't think so. How would Jesus train? The reason Jesus did what Jesus did is because Jesus trained like Jesus trained. You know how he started out his ministry? You remember? What's the first thing he did before he launched his massive three-year ministry? He spent 40 days and 40 nights, what? Fasting in the wilderness. Well, you think that was fun? That was about training. Why? So he goes out on fire. Before he picked his disciples, what did he do? He spent all night long praying to lock in with the Father. That's training. You want to know how to get it done right. You live like Jesus on a daily basis. Then when go time shows up, you're ready to fire. It is not about what would Jesus do in the moment. You're setting yourself up for failure. How would Jesus train to do what you're going to need to do next week? That's a whole different ball game. That's what we're talking about. We add what? To our faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control what? Perseverance, courageous patience to endure suffering because you know what it's for. You know what's to come. Sometimes you just have to hunker down and hang in there and go through suffering. Sometimes it's just not going to go well. And you hang in there. Why? Because you know that in heaven there is something waiting for you. You know that whatever the pains of this life are, they are not worth comparing to the glory that you will receive. Because of this knowledge, because of the forward thinking, you endure and you withstand the pummeling of this world. He said, you need to throw that in there. Because sometimes it's just about hanging in there. What do you add to that? Add to perseverance, godliness. 
That means always correctly worshiping God and always serving man rightly, meaning completely unselfish. If you want to think about a knight in shining armor, I want you to think this word right here. That's the man or the woman that lives their life and is solid with Jesus and solid with other people. It's that above reproach concept where you're always looking out for somebody else's best interest. And you're moving through life to figure out how you can change the world for God's benefit. Spending the time with God deeply. Spending the time with people honestly. What do you add to that? It says, to godliness, add brotherly kindness. That is the word Philadelphia. What's brotherly kindness? It means you sincerely love your brothers. You don't go, well, I have to love you. No, you know what? You need to add some emotion in that. You need to add some affection. And you need to love people, not tolerate them. You need to love them. What do you add to brotherly kindness? You add love. That's loving like God loves. That's the whole wrap up the picture thing. He said, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, if you keep growing in this stuff, what? They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is us. Ineffective and unproductive. Why? Because you know Jesus. What difference has it made? You're like, well, I'm saved. All right, that's cool for you. What about your neighbor? They don't care you're saved. Hasn't affected them at all. Unproductive, unaffected. Why? Is it because God has not provided for you? No, that's not it. It's because we have not utilized, we have not put forward all our effort for spiritual growth. But we must. That's why we're here. To utilize what we've been given. And it says, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, He's nearsighted and blind. He's forgotten he's been cleansed from his past sins. In other words, what were you saved for again? Did you forget what this is about? You think it's about getting saved and going to heaven? Boy, are you mistaken. It's about growing in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and changing the world. That's what we're doing here. We're not trying to get a ticket to heaven. You probably got that about 35 years ago. What have you been doing since then? I grew up a believer. I grew up with a mom who gave me a role modeling of what it is to love Jesus. In my earliest memories, I was calling on God. I'm about to turn 38 years old. In my 38 years worth of spiritual growth, how long have you been saved? Three years? You got three years worth of maturity in you. Because I'll bet you anything, you accelerated and did most of your growth the first year. Why did you slow down? You got all that time under your belt, does it show? Or are you embarrassed to tell people how long you've been a Christian? Or do you still brag about it without thinking of the implications? I've been a Christian 23 years. Somebody looks at you and you go, wow, I couldn't tell. Oops. He finishes with this. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and your election sure. What does that mean? Your calling is God's initiation and salvation of your soul. 
Election is the fact that God whispered your name. That he said, come here. Make those things sure in your heart. Live in such a way that you can step forward with boldness and confidence. That you know that you are locked and loaded where Jesus wants you to be. Make it courageous. For if you do these things, you will never fall. You mean I'll never sin? No, it means you're never going to stumble because Satan can't really get a foothold in there to trip you up. That's actually what it means. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know what it's going to sound like? It's going to sound like this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I got all kinds of stuff for you. Is that practical enough? It doesn't get any more practical than that. In light of the return of Jesus Christ, how should we live? In light of all we learned in Revelation, what difference does it make? It better make that difference. Are we ready to spiritually grow? Because we're on the fast track now. You ready to hit it hard? That's what we're going to be doing week in and week out. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you would give us such an excitement and a a courage to step forward. That, Lord, you have given us everything and more that we would possibly need to get the job done. To give the best performance of our lives. That we would be a walking trophy for you. That when Satan or his demons or our neighbors look upon us, it would shine Jesus. And they would think, wow, he makes a difference. God be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.